Welcome to the Business of You podcast. I'm your host, Rachel Gogos. This podcast is dedicated to helping you uncover how to turn your big idea into big business and grow your personal brand into the business of your dreams. Each week, I'll talk to founders of all kinds of businesses, exploring how they launched and grew their companies. Behind every successful business is an epic journey, one that can serve as a roadmap to help you grow yours. The Business of You is all about frank conversations and unique business wisdom for the entrepreneur. It's a chance to tune into the story behind the brand and retrace the path of those who walked this road before you so you can pave your own road to success. Welcome to The Business of You. Welcome, friends. Today we have Jake Cook on The Business of You podcast. Jake is the co-founder and CEO at Tad Paul, working across e-commerce, digital marketing, and predictive analytics. While he's worked for companies like Google and Microsoft, these days, Jake's deeply passionate about helping mid-market companies compete by harnessing their own data sets and turning that data into profit with the power of AI. In today's episode, we take a deep dive into what exactly that means. Once it's broken down, it's actually really simple to understand and super fascinating. It's basically the ability to scale your company, and they focus on e-commerce companies, but to scale your company using the power of data and amplifying it with AI. A little more about Jake before we dive in. He holds dual teaching appointments at Montana State University and the University of Montana. And he also guest lectures at Harvard Business School on the topics of data science and e-commerce. Jake has open sourced his course materials for everybody to access at ondigitalmarketing.com. He has also earned an undergraduate degree in physics and an MA in marketing from Drury University while he was on a swim scholarship. Enjoy connecting with Jake Cook today through the business of you. I hope you learn a lot and enjoy this episode. Jake, so good to have you on the show today. How are you so far? I am wonderful. Thank you for having me on. I'm excited to dive in. You have strengths in areas where I am weak, so this should be an awesome convo. Um, <laughs> Likewise, yes. <laughs> so, so tell me, you are, you know, today you're the CEO of a company called Tadpole, but would love mm-hmm. to hear uh, young Jake's journey to finding his way in the world and, and founding this company. So, yeah, it's a great question. Uh, was very confused um, growing up. So I was I was kind of interested in lots of stuff. I was really obsessed with Native American history as a kid. So I uh, loved stories and cultures and things like that. Uh, when I went to college, I tried business, tried sociology, and I had had a physics teacher in high school that we did. We solved this one problem where we, it was a photo of a satellite dish. And from that little photo, you could figure out where the latitude and longitude of where it was on the face of the earth. And I remember that very distinctly kind of changing my mind because a lot of math, what's the point of math? I don't really get it. But once that kind of crystallized, like, well, math can tell you all sorts, it's a way to describe nature and tells you all sorts of great stories. So I switched majors in (laughs) my freshman year and was a physics major, um, was going to be an engineering dual degree, hated engineering. Um, And so I ended up with a master's degree in marketing and undergrad in physics, which seems kind of odd. But for when the web kind of took off and the internet, this kind of idea of kind of art and science um, 
worked out really, really well. So a lot of what I do all day is kind of like apply the scientific method to, you know, business problems. Oh, that is such an interesting and unique combo. How, how did, like, tell us about some of your other jobs and like what inspired you to start your own company? Like, were you dissatisfied by leadership and other companies or, you know, did you just have this amazing idea that you thought like, I just need to start my own thing? Like, what was the inspiration point for you? Yeah, I'm kind of unemployable. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the thing for me was I had a, I have Crohn's disease, which is an autoimmune disorder. And I'd had a, a planned surgery. And then six months later, I had uh, what they call an intestinal strangulation, which basically means your intestines get twisted. And three out of four times, it will it's fatal. So I was about 26 at the time. And I remember kind of like waking up in ICU being like, wow, that was that could have been it. And there was a lot of things I felt like where I was going career-wise weren't really on point with maybe, you know, as we were talking about, you know, kind of living your core values and realize that life's a lot shorter than maybe, you know, at 25, 26, you don't ever think that, but it was a really great experience despite um, the, what it sounds like. So as a result of that, I thought, man, I better get moving. So my first company, we started, uh, we bought a 3d printer. And so we were doing stuff, pulling uh, data down from <coughs> Google earth and scale models and building out scale models of cities. And from that, we were able to get, uh, we got a call one day from Google. And, you know, if Google calls you with a cryptic voicemail, you think you're probably getting sued that you violated some terms of service or whatever. And so by the end of the day, I got the nerve and called them back and Google said, no, we saw what you did. We saw, we read the blog post and we haven't seen anything like that yet. So we actually like to order a model of our, of our headquarters in Boulder. Wow. And um, so from there, we, you know, we had the, we literally had a garage startup. So we had the 3D printer in our garage here in Bozeman, Montana, and we were planning out all this fun technology to 3D print things and stuff like that. So that was kind of the first company. And then we were in Belgium speaking at a 3D printing conference the day that Lehman Brothers failed. And I remember the keynote said, this is a very dark day in the history of capitalism. <laughs> thinking like, that does not sound like this is going to be good. And so... So needless to say, you know, our audience was architects and real estate developers, which kind of obviously dried up in 08, 09. So, um, but from that, um, from those experiences, we really figured out a lot of stuff with SEO, you know, social media, YouTube, things like that. So I was like, oh, I actually enjoy that a lot more than some of the other pieces. So that's kind of how I got into Mm -hmm. doing digital marketing. Hmm. The 3D printing company, you said you bought that? I, we bought a 3D printer. Yeah. Oh, then, you bought a 3D yeah. printer. Okay. And yeah. then started a company from that. Yeah. And, yeah. and th- who's the we in that? Like, did you have a business partner for that? I've got a business partner and a life partner. So my wife and I have uh, started started that company together. Okay. So we bootstrapped, um, we bootstrapped them all. So yeah. Uh, as I say, I always work with people smarter than you. <laughs> <laughs> and it just so happened she's your wife. That's yes, awesome. Yes. Yes. Good choice. <laughs> <laughs> so how many companies have you started so far? So uh, this is the third one. Um, and so, yes, then this has been the one we've been really having a lot of fun with because a lot of what we get to do is really helping, you know, smaller mid-market companies have access to kind of technology and artificial intelligence and all this good stuff that helps them kind of fight against like an Amazon or a, mm. a larger competitor. So, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So explain Tadpole, um, as I was sharing, I read a little bit about it, but I, I, I'm really curious to understand how you actually help e-commerce companies grow through the data that you're gathering. Yeah. So I'll start with the name. So the name Tadpole, which is a little weird, uh, it's P it's spelled T A D P U L L. And we put the poll in there by on purpose. Cause we, 
really are huge fans of kind of design thinking and user empathy. And so this idea of instead of push marketing or push advertising, we would do kind of more pull marketing. And so that's where the PULL came from. And when we can kind of understand our customers, what their needs are, you know, customers give us data qualitative. They may tell us what they like and stuff, but they also give us clues in a quantitative way based on their behaviors on websites and things like that. And we can talk about privacy and ethics around data collection. Happy to speak to kind of our thesis on that. But um, by understanding those customers, kind of pulling them in and helping brands basically deliver better digital experiences, which is really the expectation. You know, Amazon's trained us all to want it on our, you know, get it ordered anytime on our phone, seamless returns, you know, shipping, all that good stuff. So that's a lot for some companies that don't have those resources to master. So we really help them kind of think through that. And we have this kind of a, a flywheel framework we, we walk them through to kind of put them on a journey to do it. Okay. Yeah. So who are your ideal customers on the e-commerce side who would be interested in, in using this platform? So it's usually companies that are doing, you know, around five to 10 million is kind of the lower end. Some are doing 50 to hundred million. So those are ones that are, the e-commerce is, is moving. They've kind of proved out that this is a viable channel. It's sometimes for lots of reasons, it's not maybe has performed as well as they'd hoped. They don't, sometimes they don't always have the talent in-house to do that. And so, um, but they're, they're as a core, I guess, focus of the company, they really see e-commerce as the future. So those are kind of some of the, I guess, revenue numbers we look for. And then also some of the cultural mindsets from leadership. Okay. And then Jake, can you talk a little bit about how you built your company? So was it you and your wife at the beginning and then how did you expand and grow? Yeah, we started, we bootstrapped and started out of our basement. Mm-hmm. And this so one too. I, mm-hmm. This one too. Yeah. I am a huge fan of bootstrapping. It's incredibly painful. <laughs> it quite frankly sucks a lot of days or can at times, especially the early on. But I think what it does is it forces you to get to product market fit or service market fit. You've got to really figure out and what I do, what if, if what am I putting all this effort into? Does it matter? And, you know, there's no better way to prove that than if someone will, you know, cut a PO for what you're offering. So big fan of that. So, yeah, so we started in our basement. Um, I've been an adjunct professor since 2007. So I've had the extreme privilege to have some incredibly bright students that I could recruit from class. And so we started with one of the, one of the best students I'd ever had. Um, and so we launched out of our basement and, we started with kind of like when you bootstrap, you can do whatever it takes to keep the lights on. So we did a lot of um, our initial thesis in 2012 was around user experience research. So designing better apps and websites and flows through those things. And um, so, yeah, we did a lot of kind of project based one offs uh, in a former life. I used to code a bunch. So we coded custom websites. So we did some of that to kind of make it go and. And then um, as we could kind of see where the world was going to go with data, we started focusing on building our own software um, in the process and just took retained earnings and plowed it into that and um, bit by brick by brick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and how big's the company now and where are you all based? So we're around 20 employees, fully remote, uh, folks kind of everywhere from Brazil and Estonia to St. Louis to, um, to, to Bozeman, Montana here where the headquarters is. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's, that's good. How do you uh, also just, you know, the fact, given the fact that you have a marketing background, how do you build and maintain a culture in your company, especially being remote? We're huge fans of traction or EOS, entrepreneurial operating system that helped a lot. I think 
you know, core values is something we look for when we hire. We're really, we, you know, we, we kind of have this idea that within reason, we can teach a lot of things, but we can't always teach things like hustle, empathy being a huge one, right? Um, and I always say, you, you want to do, you want to try hard for your team, not your boss. And it, if you, if you feel, if you're okay letting your team down, you're probably not going to like our culture because we're extremely focused on the team. So we win as a team, we lose as a team. And one of our uh, employees says, you know, teamwork makes the dream work is one of Ian, Ian's quotes. So that is a, a huge thing we, we kind of look for as well. And some folks, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, that's, I think, good culture is that some people can come in and for whatever reason in the hiring process, maybe it didn't quite align or we didn't catch some of that stuff, but the culture tends to be pretty resilient at kind of pushing those types of things, pushing those, attracting and repelling some of those types of folks that maybe align around that. So, yeah. 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 How do you cultivate that feeling of teamwork? Mm, excellent question. I think what I've seen over the years is we try very much to reward people for trying that kind of growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. And so if people put the work in and they're trying, you know, the team is incredibly supportive and things like that. And so a lot of people we've had just like, well, I've never worked at places where you know people were kind, they would help you get unstuck. I, there's the, you know, lots of opportunities to learn and grow. You can kind of take your, you know, one of the best things we ever heard on an employee feedback form was you can kind of write your own ticket here. You can move into different positions, into different parts of the business, things like that as well. And then for our alumni that graduate from Tadpole, you know, a lot of them go on to great opportunities too. So we kind of, that's a, you know, a springboard. We like to retain that talent for as long as we can, obviously, but, uh, you know, seeing folks go on to do amazing things um, based on some of the skills they master here is always really satisfying. And I would say just as, if not more so on the client side. So we try and have that kind of education, I guess, our roots being in academia. Um, we try and really spread the spread the knowledge and be pretty open book and explain things. And, and some of our clients go on to get promotions and that's some of the, you know, they go on to you know, lead entire groups where they start off maybe as an entry-level employee. So mm -hmm. those are really exciting to see. Yeah, that's interesting. So you're also like helping cultivate growth in your clients, personal growth, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I think there's, you know, top line growth is what the CFO or C-suite is going to care about or a PE firm or an investor, you know, board or whatever. But so that the revenue growth is huge and we focus exclusively on driving P&L results. So a little bit different than maybe more abstract marketing tasks. Like we're, that's what I like about e-commerce. There's no confusion on if we, you know, how things are working, you can really measure it. Uh, but at the same time, though, that growth of it, of our staff and then our, our clients on the other side of the table is, is really exciting too. So I hope, yeah, our hope is if you, if you enter the orbit of Tadpole, you would say that, you know, you, whether you were internal or external, you came away with it with more skills, better understanding of the space, and also maybe some frameworks to help grow your own skill yeah, sets. Yeah, that's excellent. What's it like working with your wife? And how does <laughs> how does strategic planning look uh, around the kitchen table? <laughs> we have a rule, like sometimes you know it's it's eight o'clock. I'm sick of talking about work. Let's let's call it, you know, or we'll even set a timer. Like, all right, you got five minutes, wind it down, you know. So, kind of parking it. Uh, but we work extremely well together. We've um, we met in high school. We were on the swim team together. At, you know, we da uh, dated for four years. Went to separate schools on on swimming scholarships. So. I think having been an athlete together, you saw the good days and the bad days. And 
Um, and, and then we kind of just worked as teams, you know, when we were getting this one going, you know, she worked for the university or Montana state university for eight years and did her PhD at the same time. So while she was doing that, we were kind of surprised, you know, providing health insurance and some of the early, the early things you need to, to stay alive in business. Uh, you know, I worked on growing the business and then when she got with her PhD and some other milestones, she joined the company full time. So she leads the product and she's kind of our chief data officer. So she leads the product data science teams and um, is really, really good at organization and looking at academic literature and informing our product roadmap from what the academics are telling us. So, yeah, so, yeah it's great. But we definitely um, <clears throat> we, we have a good debates at times as well, too. Um, yeah. So. Well, spending all that time together, that would be inevitable, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> With your other two companies, did you sell those or did you just wind them down? I'm just so curious. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, the first one, Sweet Onion Creations, we, we wound down um, with with a recession and uh, sold the 3D printer to the University of California, Berkeley School of Architecture. So not quite the exit we'd envisioned at 25 or 26. Um, and then the next one, um, I wanted to move more into products in doing building software products. And so uh, that one we wound down um, with a business partner as well. And so Agile was the one where it was like, we just kind of, wow, we got, we got kind of Greenfield. And as, as you know, when you're doing, but there's so much to learn. Entrepreneurship, I think is, it's like playing chess in 3D in the dark. When you start, you're just trying to figure out the pieces and how they go together. And it's just a lot to master. So um, yeah, it, took, it took me a while. Yeah. <laughs> that's <laughs> a, little... a great analogy. Jake, I, one thing I, people struggle with quite a bit when they start their own business is knowing when to walk away from it, you know, like yes. when, when the end is there. So any tips you can share based on um, your first two exits on on how you know, like when the end is is upon you and, you know, because you hear those stories of people were just like, they were ready to quit. And then two weeks later, boom, like they had this massive growth spurt, right? And, it, and it's, it's like you're starting to hit your upper limit. So you're ready to give in, but you don't and you make it. So this is kind of the opposite, right? Like you're, you're, you're there and you're like, eh, I'm kind of done with this. So, so what, how do you know when that, which one it is? Yeah. There's a really good book that just came out from Annie Duke, the poker player. Um, she wrote a really good book around decision-making, but it's basically when you quit, which I think game of poker is all about knowing probabilities and when do you quit, which I think is a really useful metaphor. So I would say writing down what are your criteria for quitting is a really just a good thoughtful exercise. I will quit if boom, boom, if I hate going to work every day, if I hate dealing with my customers, if I hate, <laughs> you know, or whatever. And, um, you know, that's a big piece of it. I think the other part too, with some of those stories is there can be a survivorship bias there of you only hear from the ones that did get that, you know, wow, I got that big deal. And then the took off and you don't hear about maybe some of the other ones that, um, wreck their marriage or wreck their relationships with their family. I mean, there's a dark side entrepreneurship that's not often spoken about that I think, um, you know, is probably could use more uh, attention in my opinion, a little bit on that side of it too. Uh, but yeah, I would say, so how do we know to, how do we know to shut them down? The first one was pretty easy when the economy tanked. It was like, all right, that, didn't look like, that one was like, I, we could hang in there, but I don't think this is, this is going to be years to bounce and we need to do, you know, when you have a business loan that, focuses you in ways that you're like, I just don't see this coming. I didn't enjoy it that often either. You know, it was a very intense, you're doing really bleeding edge technology. 
it would kind of work sometimes it wouldn't you know these crazy tight deadlines um the customers and architects are kind of you know last minute planners a little bit because of their clients so you get a lot of stuff like overnight you're pulling all-nighters it just wasn't fun work and it didn't really look like it could scale in any capacity so um so that one was pretty easy the second one i think um knowing kind of where I wanted to take the business and then having a business partner that maybe didn't share that vision, very talented technical person, but you know, didn't quite have that maybe same piece of it that, that after four years, that was a hard one to kind of come to terms with because it's been four years and it was growing, but, um, but different visions there, which, you know, later on you realize is actually a pretty common thing with business partnerships that they're pretty hard to kind of get to get to work out over the long term. So yeah, so I'd say those things were kind of the big ones for me. And the big part, you know, there's that quote from Steve Jobs in his graduation speech that I think at Stanford where he says, you know, if you if you wake up every day and you look in the mirror and you and you don't like it, you you know, that happens too long, you need to change it. So yeah. I think that was a good one. Yeah. So you're almost 10 years into Tadpole, huh? Yes. Yes. That's great. So no no bad um feedback in the mirror it sounds like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've been incredibly blessed to be surrounded by some just phenomenal world-class people and they make my job really, really fun. I can focus on things I enjoy. We've got wonderful experts and different things that I'm way, way more well-versed at than I am. So I'm able to kind of focus on what I get a charge out of. And then, you know, my job is just to keep the culture and the vision and the capital and kind of manage those and then, uh, you know, get things out of their way at this point. So it's been really, really fun. What are some trends that you're seeing that might be surprising in in your work with the e-commerce companies? I would say, you know, the modern, I call them monopolies to some degree, uh, are built on data and customer data or individual data is really how they're able to do that. And so if you look at a Google or an Amazon, and I use these services too, so I, I'm not saying, I'm not trying to paint, paint them as, you know, awful entities in any perspective. But I would say that they they've had that vision for a couple of decades. And so the thing about um, machine learning or artificial intelligence, you hear all these buzzwords. And if you think about data, it compounds just like capital does. So the more data you have and the earlier you have it, it compounds at very predictable rates. And that is something that I think a lot of folks don't quite realize is uh, I, I teach a couple of grad courses on data science and um e-commerce and the first step you do in data science it's 80 percent is just getting the data and cleaning it and then 20 percent of the work is just applying these algorithms and which basically all that means is we identify patterns and from the patterns we can extrapolate or predict what might happen in the future with some degree of confidence uh but to do that you need the raw raw fuel and so i think that's something that a lot of companies strategically even regardless of what you're doing, you'll have to, if you're anything on the web, you've got to have data in your own data. You have to have a thesis on how you're going to leverage the data or you pay a toll or a tax to Facebook or to Amazon or these guys. So I think it's a important thing to take about strategically that a lot of folks that typically don't like data or are intimidated yes. by it, don't think about it. Yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, so you mentioned these companies like the Googles and the Amazons that have been collecting this data for decades. So in your work, are you, when you start working with your companies, what is the first step? Is it essentially to kind of like identify this is the data you need to gather and then start gathering it? Yeah. So I think that's a great question. Like where do you start in this whole journey, if you will? The first thing we do with our customers is we call a growth plan. And we do this for two reasons. One is it's almost a loss leader for us. 
but we take about two to three weeks and we comb through lots and lots of different data. For example, we might look at inventory data, website behavior data, uh, you know, financial data, all these types of things, and we'll come back with some machine learning or we'll run this through some what they call what's possible to predict for that is. And then we'll kind of map back to like, well, what do you guys want to do? How big do you want the bit? How fast do you want to grow the business? Do you have the capital to grow the business? And there's some really good kind of thoughtful questions. And then we'll kind of build out an org chart or, a you know, here's what you need. Here's the holes that you don't have that you're going to have to have. And uh, from there, you know, after two or three weeks, we have a pretty good sense um, if that will, what's, what's reasonable. So for example, let's say, look, we want to double our e-commerce business. Like, great. Well, what are we looking to put in for capital? And they'll say, well, we're not going to change that. Like, well, we're kind of violating gravity at that point. Like <laughs> I may want to fly, but I can't, I can only jump so high. So we have to think a little bit about what are the inputs to that system and what's reasonable. And we can break these things down in very simple conditional logic that if we did this, then we should see that. And we've doing it long enough and we've got some pretty good IP around it that we can predict within reason what those things will look like. The second reason we do this is cultural fit. And we're really strict on who we work with across the table because a lot of this requires a high degree of trust. And, um, you know, there's a, a really famous article, um, in the profanity, I'm gonna leave this in because that's how it was published in HBR was uh, the no asshole rule. So we're really strict on not working with assholes. And so I'm, and I, I leave the profanity in by design because I think it's a really powerful way to say that. So, yeah. So we find like we might have one of those across the table or it's going to be difficult. In two or three weeks, we can suss it out. And I, my job is to take care of our people. I take care of our people to take care of the customers and the customers take care of the company. But if we put the customer between the people, which sounds a little bit weird, but then that burns the people out. And in our industry, it's so hard to hire the talent because there's such a, an imbalance of the talent for the skills needed. So we're really, really careful on, on, on how we, on who we, who we work with. Right. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And, and I like your kind of ecosystem there of you take care of your people, the customers take care of your whole company, essentially. Yes. What would make a customer a potential asshole? Is it kind of like misusing the data from misusing in the sense, like they're using it properly, but maybe not with the best of intent? I would love actually to turn the question around to you, given your work and core yeah. values and stuff, because yeah. I think it's interesting. Uh, what I would say is we've had customers, and this is no joke. I remember being on site at a client um, and we said, well, this is the data. That's wrong. I don't believe that. And so we turned around Google Analytics. Like, look, look at Google Analytics. This is the data. I'm like, oh, that's wrong too. I don't trust that either. And it's that idea of that just blind cluelessness. And if we can't agree on a common source of truth or some sort of like, hey, this is reality and we're going to work backwards from there. Um, then those are really hard things. Because the thing about the internet and e-commerce is people think of it as just an ATM. You just got to like slide the card in and then all this money just flows out. And it's just like anything in business. You got to work at it. You got to manage the risks. You got to fix the things that break every day. And I think there's a common misperception for people that haven't worked in e-commerce. They've read the Inc. Magazine story about all birds. And it's like, oh, we're the next all birds. And you're like, did you see how much they raised from venture capitalists to do that? Like, <laughs> so... There's some of that kind of stuff as well. So that I think is kind of asshole behavior is we can we can coach through that if they're willing to learn. But if they're rude, they're um, they're not organized and then they blame our team like, well, this wasn't that that kind of stuff. Like if they don't have that, don't own that, don't have the self-awareness to own that, hey, we're all humans, we have mistakes. But um, sometimes they're used to just taking an agency and 
riding him really hard and being nasty. And their, their whole their whole business strategy is to kind of I'll run an agency for six months, I'll ride them, and then I'll get them out. And then, um, you know, we work with our clients for years. Like Jackson Hole Resort, we run we work with them for years and years and years. And so we're looking for long term plays. So yeah, it's it's like family, right? I mean, the longer you work with people at, at that level of collaboration, I mean, they become essentially like part of your family. Exactly. And yeah, yeah, exactly. What are some of the biggest challenges that you see that e-commerce companies are struggling with? I think, you know, Apple updated their operating system. Yes. iOS 14. And that really changed digital marketing in a fundamental way. Probably the biggest thing I've seen in a decade. So if you think about what Facebook and Instagram built was the world's, you know, most powerful targeting ad system that we'd ever seen. And the part of the reasons is, you know, Apple, Apple devices, there's where almost high value customers tend to own a, a, an Apple device. So they're, they're lucrative. Uh, but what we see with Instagram and Facebook is they could do what they call cross device. So they knew when you're on your desktop, they know when you're on your tablet, when you're on your phone, they knew if you liked something or commented on something, those all send signals back to the algorithm. So they start to can hone in. And like I've seen earlier, when you have lots of data, it compounds and it can compound exponentially. So that amazing data sets that would let, you know, you like to, you live in Montana and you, other people that for me, right. Other people that like to go skiing probably like these other products. And so that, that the feed and the way they served up ads was incredibly targeted. And then it's amazing advantage where if you went to the website and engaged, but didn't buy 68% of uh, shopping carts are abandoned globally. So uh-huh. most of us are kind of, Two out of three are kind of just hucking stuff in there and then we'll think about it later. You know, I don't want to get your credit card out. And there's billions of dollars invested to try and solve that problem right now. But that was a signal that they could basically show you that ad down the road, which my dad became incredibly paranoid that the internet was spying on him as a result. But um, when Apple said, you know, timeout, that's not happening anymore. We're not letting you have that kind of access. Or we're going to let the user decide if that's possible. Then I think it kind of broke the internet from e-commerce in a big way. So a lot of companies are really, if you were overly reliant on paid ads to grow the business, you're in a tough spot. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned privacy a little earlier. What what are your thoughts on, um, you know, being a data collector yourself? Like what are your thoughts on privacy and, and how cautious should consumers be about protecting their privacy? I think you can I just rewind the clock a few years ago, people didn't know the difference between a browser and a search engine, right? Am I on Google or Chrome or what is Firefox or any of these things? I think people are waking up to that. I think some of the stuff that happened with uh, in the political space and how some of the stuff worked woke people up to, wow, this is interesting. And a lot of us, whether we believe it or not, are, are kind of programmed by the algorithms. You know, what you're recommended to see in YouTube isn't an accident. And there's some interesting ethical debates on that. Uh, but I would say tactically for our customers, we always sit down and default to what their legal counsel recommends. So we're not, you know, internet privacy experts in terms of how they want to handle risk on that side of it. From a ethics perspective, we really preach that if you're going to collect the data on the customer, explain to them why you're doing it and what they're going to get back as a result. There is a, there is a transaction here of value. So, you know, Rachel, you come to the website, you say you like, uh, you know, black is your favorite color. Okay, well, let's not send you an email if we're out of stock and stuff in black. 
So we're not going to interrupt your day or get in your inbox or anything like that unless we have something that matters to you. And we we do need that data. And that's what we call kind of zero party data, where there's zero intermediaries between us and you and getting that data. And then the, the brand has to deliver, I think, on an experience from that that shows that, hey, we're we're coming coming through on that. That could be a little heady. That's something a little idealistic, perhaps. But I think on a subconscious level, we all kind of we get the spam emails and the you know or the product that's out of stock, and you're kind of like, why am I, why are you bugging me with this? So I think that's key. Yeah, I think there's such a fine line between um, the data collection helping make our experiences online much more efficient and just generous from a user perspective to like really creeping on our preferences and it feeling spooky and invasive. Yeah, I was shopping earlier this week for a product and I never gave them my email address and I put something in cart and I got an email the next day and I was like, that is definitely, now I'm creeped out. Yeah, and you can, and there's, and I think that's something I've seen some, some clients have heard within their circles, oh, there's this tool you can do that. And I always say there's no shortcut in life or in business. So if you find this sort of growth hack or whatever, it'll get shut down at some point. So be very careful. I'm a huge fan of the Warren Buffett, Charlie Munger models of, hey, slow and steady kind of wins the race. Whether you're building data or building a company, just slow and steady will win the race. If it can grow quick, it can get taken away quick. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I feel the same way. So what's, what's um, behind the personal brand of Jake Cook? Uh, it's You're teaching a class at Harvard Business School. Um, but like, what are you doing to, to get out behind your business brand a little bit, if anything at all? I should get some tips from you, Rachel. (laughs) (laughs) We'll talk about that after the show. (laughs) Well, actually, let me ask you a quick question. What have you seen effective entrepreneurs do to build their personal brand? I'd love just to ask you that question. I I wanted to, so yeah. Yeah. uh, Speaking, writing books, uh, do, you know, speaking, whether it's on a podcast or on an, you know, an industry event really any type event that's one Mm. way to build the personal brand doing TEDx talks around topics like you know for you talking about just even the intersection of um data analytics you know predictive analytics and marketing like that would be really fascinating I think and you know how that impacts human behavior whatever like again whatever like philosophically that you want to share out there um kind of developing your messaging and then spreading it through different platforms. Fascinating. Well, I've got some work to do. (laughs) But if you want, right, that may not be aligned with your, with how you want to grow Tadpole. Right. So sometimes like the personal brand helps a business brand grow and sometimes a business brand helps a personal brand grow. So it just depends on for you, Jake, you know, what are your goals say like in the next three to five years? What I really love is taking technology and mathematics and solving business problems with them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I typically, I'm not super interested in the Twitter follower count or anything like that. I'm just more interested in doing the work and then connecting with really sharp people that are kind of doing the work. And so that's kind of where I get get a charge from. Uh, and I've always felt like just from a core value perspective, like it's about the team. And so if the CEO in my, it's just my personal view, uh, but if the CEO is out there talking about how awesome what she's doing is amazing and how awesome her work is and things like that, or his work or whatever, I think you want to be, it can kind of distract from the team. And I think it also can build a little bit of a 
fanatical worship worship mindset around that person. Like, oh, I've, and then I think politics start to emerge of, well, you got to get FaceTime with the CEO to get ahead and you got to, you know, ease them. And I would much rather kind of sit in the back. I read a, one of my favorite books I read recently was Phil Jackson's book, uh, The Coach of the Bulls. And one of my personal heroes is John Wooden, who was the UCLA basketball coach. And if you if you read those both those books, they, they have a very common theme I noticed was the details, you know. And so, especially John Wooden, who, for those that maybe don't know, was a, a UCLA basketball coach, won I think like seven national titles in a row, which is very rarely people went back to back in the NCAA's, but did it, and then had this incredible dynasty, and built the program from basically nothing. And if you, he had a lot of, grew up on a farm in Indiana and had a lot of that kind of farm <laughs> mentality of, you know, just you, you go to work, you, you do the things. And I, one of the things I love about him is his definition of success is, you know, it's, you focus on what you can control and you can control how you prepare and how you work. You can't control what a competitor does or some of that kind of stuff. So I found a lot of solace in that. And um, Phil Jackson's work around how he managed Michael Jordan with Dennis Rodman with, I mean, if you watch that last dance documentary on, on Netflix, it's so fascinating to see these huge personalities and incredible athletes, but how they, he kind of managed the egos and all that. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. Absolutely. So I guess all that to say is about the team, in my opinion, and doing the work and not the, maybe the um, yeah, grandstanding. Yeah. Or whatever, yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> So it's, it's such a fascinating answer that you you just shared. And I just want to take a, a second and just kind of shatter a myth around this because so many people think personal branding is about the I, right? Like the ego. Yeah. And it's not. But so you shared, you know, like one of your passions is taking mathematics and helping, you know, applying it to business problems and solving those business problems, right? So let's say you started getting out there and talking more. And yes, people are talking to you as Jake Cook, CEO of Tadpole, but as you start to get more visibility for doing for solving that problem, that could attract business to Tadpole and help Tadpole grow. And yes. therefore, you know, create deeper pockets for you and you like feed your team better lunches or whatever the, you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Raise their salaries. No, to, I like how you, but how you yeah. So it's all, all so interconnected. It's not about the ego. It's, it's, it's about yeah. getting yourself out there to, to market the company. And I'm probably overgeneralizing here a little bit, Rachel, around just my viewpoints on social media yeah. and the way yeah. that I think from the way people project this image on social media yes. versus no one's going on Instagram being like, oh man, too lazy to do the dishes. <laughs> my house is a mess. I know. My inbox is a mess. Like <laughs> I haven't gone to the gym. Like, or, you know, I mean, I think like um, our team is messing around with this new app called Be Real and we're playing around oh, with some yeah. stuff. Just kind of that, that, I think we're seeing so many people like, hey, let's be full human beings there too. So yeah, yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I totally agree. And I think I'm kind of an introvert by nature. I'm yes. really content being left alone with my code and <laughs> math. So in my books. So, but yeah, I think that's something my team has been kind of challenging me a little bit on is like, yeah. Hey, you need to be kind of doing that a little bit more. So, yeah. 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 So it's good. It's good yeah. for me. Yeah, totally. So, so fascinating. Um, and it's funny that be real, actually my kids have started using that and I, they were telling me about it the other day. I was like, that is actually such a great premise. I hope it stays that way, right? Which is like take a snapshot of yourself in a in an authentic moment, not the best of, not the highlight reel, and just put it out there. Yes. 
Yes. I think about, you know, seen some data and correlations between the rise in eating disorders among mm-hmm. teenage girls and Instagram, right? And correlation is not causation, but yeah. there seems to be some interesting overlaps with this projection and people trying to mold themselves to fit the this screen. So yeah, yeah. but that's, yeah. <laughs> sorry, that's a little bit in a random area. No, but, no, it's interesting. Yeah. It's interesting. So the, the last thing I want to ask you about is um, some of the coursework that you're teaching at Harvard Business School, because it really sounded like a passion of yours when we were chatting kind of pre-interview. So can you share a little bit about that and also how you're um, able to effectively keep a foot in academia and run a company? Yes. So I'm an adjunct professor at Montana State and the University of Montana. And what adjunct really means is like you're basically paid like an intern. <laughs> That's what adjunct means. You're so, a contractor. Yeah, a contractor, yeah. So, uh, and I say that uh, with nothing but love uh, for the institutions I get to teach for. But the nice thing about being an adjunct and some of the courses I've been able to develop and teach for gosh, almost 15 years now, is I get to work in areas that the tenured faculty doesn't always like to do it. You know, creating a course from scratch is a ton of work. You've got to propose a course design, get it through committees. It's, it's a lot of stuff. But um, the way that I found to stay current with this world that goes pretty quick is by teaching because it forces you to form a thesis. And like, how am I going to explain this? And where is it going? What do the students need to know? And I paid for my undergrad and graduate education myself. So I feel this huge responsibility to get a good return on investment for the students that are investing not only their money, but their time with me each week. So that's kind of where I start from. And um, the courses have evolved quite a bit. So I started the digital marketing and analytics course here at Montana State. And then from that, we created one of the first grad courses in e-commerce at the University of Montana in their Master's of Science program for business analytics. So um, so I'll go a little bit deeper on the e-commerce for a second. The reason e-commerce is so much fun, Rachel, is because it's not just marketing, it's got finance, it's got operations, it's got culture, it's got all these really interdis- interdisciplinary areas. And I've always found when you kind of cross disciplines like that, it gets to be really fascinating if you're kind of the right mindset and you're curious on that stuff. So um, the stuff I'm kind of guest lecturing on at, um, at HBS is really kind of thinking through how do you scale e-commerce companies? And then in particular, what we can do around customer retention and what, what math will show us with customer retention and what's possible with customer retention. So I can go a little bit deeper on just a, a framework if that's helpful for the audience or whatever, but yeah, sure. So there's this kind of five C's, if you will think of it as uh, we've heard of the four P's of marketing. Uh, it's kind of, there's a five C's of, of e-commerce and the first C is capital. So we're going to put some money into these, these e-com businesses. And you'd be kind of surprised how many people underestimate the capital. So economics tells us that if there's an opportunity, we're going to have competition. And no surprise, there's a lot of competition in e-commerce, partly because a lot of the technology has gotten to be really, really affordable. So the barriers to entry of the technology have fallen, which means there's a lot more people doing it. We have Alibaba and overseas and manufacturing and stuff, that stuff too. So it's interesting. So first input is capital. The next C is customers. So we got to get the right customers and not all customers of equal value. So we look at some math to figure out which have high lifetime value. I mean, they're going to buy a lot with us and wonder if like low value value. The next C is campaigns. So how we run campaigns to get those customers. And in those campaigns, how we treat a first time customer versus a repeat. And this is where that personalization we were talking about earlier comes in. Where we say non-creepy personalization, like, you know, 
that that's a key piece of it. And that runs really good campaigns, which drives our 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 product catalog, which is kind of the four C there. So the inventory piece, which is something um, of of all of the C's, that's the one that typically gets ignored a lot because it typically lives in operations. And so we don't know what, what our margins are in the marketing side for this product, or we don't know if we're in stock or out of stock or, you know, what product the customer is going to buy next. You know, I don't know. And so this is where that data stuff comes in handy in that catalog. But if you go all the way around that, you kind of come out the other side and you're onto this next phase. So the last C in the, the, the sun, I call it in the, the campaigns catalog and the customers orbit around the sun of culture. So do you have a culture for doing e-commerce, which is a little bit different than a traditional business? And what I mean by that is you have to be kind of more scientific method, much more data-driven. It's moving quick. So you've got to be looking at the data and adjusting. You've got to have good goals and what you're trying to do, not only just yearly, but quarterly, monthly, weekly. And then and then you get into this orchestration of uh, with the culture, of like what are we gonna do with email and what are we do with SMS and what are we do with Facebook ads and what are we do with our content and SEO and YouTube. And so that's where that kind of culture and that culture of execution. And the ones that can kind of spin this and make it go quick tend to kind of master all those variables, which isn't trivial. It, it takes about 18 months to two years to really get through that first loop, if you will. With all those five C's you're saying? Yes. Okay. A lot of people will obsess on campaigns. Yeah, I, I was thinking when you mentioned campaigns, I mean, that really is kind of like the bedrock of their brand building too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But to your point in your background in branding, not everybody cares about you, not every, you know, and like helping think through like, well, who, what parts of our brand resonate and our product features or whatever. So not everybody's our audience. Yeah, no, that's so fascinating, Jake. Um, who, and you're open sourcing this, this curriculum, right? Or as you're teaching yeah. it? Yeah. Uh-huh. So I've had the website on digitalmarketing.com up. Uh, so I've got, I did a beginner's guide to digital marketing and I taught that course. So that, that whole textbook's free. Um, people use it all over the world, which is great. And so part of my personal mission is just to kind of demystify some of this stuff that you know, the internet's such a gift, such an amazing time to be alive and all this is at our fingertips. So the high priests of e-commerce or digital marketing, you know, we want, I, I'm kind of the, I want to be the antithesis of that. Like, Hey, you can start here. It's going to start with user empathy, but as you know, tools like WordPress or Shopify, all these things are freely available. And so, yeah, I want to see people use these ideas and grow their, grow their businesses or provide a side hustle or whatever. Yeah, absolutely. You want to empower them. Absolutely. Yes. Jake, this has been so interesting. Um, when can people, learn more about that course when will you be teaching it like when could they dive in if they wanted so um i'll be on campus next week we're gonna okay. teach it and so um we'll have uh we're teach. i wrote a case study for the final um with the professor and uh we'll be teaching that next week and then we're gonna have kind of a video series on this on the back end of it so we'll probably film that i think late november so i'd say probably january um we'll have some stuff up if you go to tadpole.com you can sign up in the newsletter and um, we have kind of a private uh, community we have as well or post some stuff there too um so yeah if you're into the nerdy geeky stuff uh we would we'd love to have you join us there okay so tadpole.com is the best place to learn about you and access this awesome information that you're putting out there for people yeah that'd be great we'd love to have you okay thank you jake it's been so great having you today thanks for having me on rachel appreciate it I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Business of You. If you found a little dose of inspiration or learned something new, 
please leave a review and share it with a friend or even two. Interested in building your brand and business? Tune in next time to the Business of You podcast. And remember, there's only one you. You're the biggest differentiator your business has. Until next time, friends.